way home. There's nothing to fight for. There's no more honor. Come to think of it, the only honorable thing to do is quiet. Collective. This is Yana again. We are back for episode four of Let's Read Albert Camus' The Fall. And this marks the halfway point of this interesting, strange audio project I've decided to undertake. But I can already tell that I'm going to be doing it again. I really, really have enjoyed this. I have really enjoyed just sitting on the microphone, thinking out loud reading out loud and then thinking out loud again and it seems like there's enough of you guys out there that are interested in it that uh, I'm gonna keep doing it so this is a soft promise that this won't be the last one now uh, I'm not gonna linger too long before I get into reading chapter 4 but I did want to mention um, it's pretty much tradition on the Jacksonway Collective at this point where if someone sends us an email, we're going to read it live. And I got a pretty cool email from David Norris from Australia. Uh, Very briefly, it says, Hello from Australia. I'm a big Camus fan and enjoying your podcast. I like the no-frills approach and genuine love of Camus' work, which comes through in your reading. Keep up the good work, man. One happy listener down under, David. So I wanted to read that just so that I could honestly give a personal shout out to David. Thank you very much. Like I said on the very first episode of this, if this makes one person's life in quarantine and isolation any better at all, and this is worth it to me. So you have now identified yourself as that one person. So thank you very much. And let's get through this entire book together. Um, But yeah, to the rest of you, the only other thing I wanted to mention was the no frills approach. I really want to just Uh, talk to everyone in the audience and say thank you for dealing with the fact that um, there are instances where I screw up a word or I have terrible French or uh, you can hear a siren in the background or maybe I sneeze or cough and I don't edit it out. Honestly, the biggest blocker for me to getting out podcasts is that it's such a huge undertaking for me to pay an editor to edit the sound and then send it back to me and then I do a final cut edit and then upload it. That entire process takes so long and it's literally the blocker from me putting out content. So thank you for enduring some of the low production quality because it means that I get to put out content that I really want to make and I don't have to procrastinate anymore. So I just wanted to say that I hear you. I know audio quality is essential in the modern world of podcasts and I'm neglecting it here, but there's a reason for it and I appreciate you guys all just buckling down and dealing with it. Um, So that's it. I think we're ready to get into chapter four. When we last left, our main character, Jean Clements, had spent the last chapter talking about his kind of downfall, his fall from grace, and in particular these two moments that really unmasked him or 
revealed some of his true characters or character traits. Um, and to his credit, he was able to share that with this unnamed person that he meets at the bar. Now, those two moments are, of course, the motorcycle accident, or I don't know what you can call it, accident, the punch in the face, the situation, <laughs> this the strange, funny situation that Jean Clemens catches himself in. And the other one is as he's walking home across the bridge, he uh, uh, comes into contact and sees this woman who's about to jump, does nothing, walks on, hears her jump, hears screams, and continues to walk on and do nothing. Two uh, very powerful, interesting moments that one can look back on in a life. Um, and two, I think, of the three defining moments in Jean Clemence's life, the third being the moment where he's smoking a cigarette um, in the Paris Keys and he hears a laugh and he can't identify where it's coming from. It's very funny to me how we can live an entire life and at the end of it we can look back and distill it into such small key moments and and sometimes there's the most insignificant moments the ones that we didn't even think we might remember um i can imagine thinking about jean clements and at the end of his life here he is confessing and one of the most key defining moments of his entire life is some strange two to three minute incident with a motorcycler at a traffic jam or traffic intersection how strange anyways so without further ado i'm going to get back into the book let's join jean clements again this is chapter four of albert camus the fall thank you everyone again for um coming along for the ride A doll's village, isn't it? No shortage of quaintness here. But I didn't bring you to this island for quaintness, cher ami. Anyone can show you peasant headdresses, wooden shoes, and ornamented houses with fishermen smoking choice tobacco surrounded by the smell of furniture wax. I am one of the few people, on the other hand, who can show you what really matters here. We are reaching the dike. We'll have to follow it to get as far as possible from these two charming houses. Please, let's sit down. Well, what do you think of it? Isn't it the most beautiful negative landscape? Just see on the left that pile of ashes they call a dune here, the gray dike on the right, the livid beach at our feet, and in front of us, the sea, the color of a weak lie solution, with the vast sky reflecting the colorless waters. A soggy hell indeed. Everything horizontal, no relief. Space is colorless and life dead. Is it not universal obliteration? Everlasting nothingness made visible? No human beings above all. No human beings. You and I alone facing the planet at last deserted. The sky is alive? You are right, Cherami. It thickens, becomes concave, opens up air shafts and closes cloudy doors. Those are the doves. Haven't you noticed that the sky of Holland is filled with millions of doves? Invisible because of their altitude, which flap their wings, rise or fall in unison, filling the heavenly space with dense multitudes of grayish feathers carried hither and thither by the wind. The doves wait up there all year round. They wheel above the earth, look down, and would like to come down. 
but there is nothing but the sea and the canals, roofs covered with shop signs, and never a head-on which to light. You don't understand what I mean? I'll admit my fatigue. I lose the thread of what I'm saying. I've lost that lucidity to which my friends used to enjoy paying respects. I say my friends were over as a convention. I have no more friends. I have nothing but accomplices. To make up for this, their number has increased. They are the whole human race. And within the human race, you first of all. Whoever is at hand is always the first. How do I know I have no friends? It's very easy. I discovered it the day I thought of killing myself to play a trick on them, to punish them in a way. But punish whom? Someone would be surprised, and no one would feel punished. I realized I had no friends. Besides, even if I had, even if I had had, I shouldn't be any better off. If I had been able to commit suicide and then see their reaction, why, the game would have been worth the candle. But the earth is dark, cher ami the coffin thick, and the shroud opaque. The eyes of the soul, to be sure, if there is a soul and it has eyes. But, you see, we're not sure. We can't be sure. Otherwise, there would be a solution. At least one could get oneself taken seriously. Men are never convinced of your reasons, of your sincerity, of the seriousness of your sufferings, except by your death. So as long as you are alive, your case is doubtful. You have a right only to their skepticism. So if there were the least certainty that one could enjoy the show, it would be worth proving to them what they are unwilling to believe and thus amazing them. But you kill yourself and what does it matter whether or not they believe you? You are not there to see their amazement and their contrition, fleeing at best, to wither, to witness according to every man's dream, your own funeral. In order to cease being a doubtful case, One has to cease being, that's all. Besides, isn't it better thus? We'd suffer too much from their indifference. You'll pay for this, a daughter said to her father who had prevented her from marrying a too well-groomed suitor, and she killed herself. But the father paid for nothing. He loved fly-casting. Three Sundays later, he went back to the river to forget, as he said. He was right, he forgot. To tell the truth, the contrary would have been surprising. You think you are dying to punish your wife, and actually you are freeing her. It's better not to see that. Besides the fact that you might hear the reasons they give for your action. As far as I'm concerned, I can hear them now. He killed himself because he couldn't bear. Ah, Jeremy, how poor in convention men are. They always think one commits suicide for a reason. But it's quite possible to commit suicide for two reasons. No, that never occurs to them. So what's the good of dying intentionally, of sacrificing yourself to the idea you want people to have of you? Once you are dead, they will take advantage of it to attribute idiotic or vulgar motives to your action. Martyrs, cher ami, must choose between being forgotten, mocked, or made use of. As for being understood, never. Besides, let's not beat around the bush. I love life. That's my real weakness. I love it so much that I am incapable of imagining what is not life. Such avidity has something plebeian about it, don't you think? Aristocracy cannot imagine itself without a little distance surrounding itself in life. One dies if necessary, one breaks rather than bending. But I bend, 
because I continue to love myself. For example, after all I have told you, what do you think I developed? An aversion for myself? Come, come. It was especially with the others that I was fed up. To be sure, I knew my failings and regretted them. Yet I continued to forget them with a rather, with a rather meritorious obstin- obstinacy. The prosecution of others, on the contrary, went on constantly in my heart. Of course, does that shock you? Maybe you think it's not logical? But the question is not to remain logical. The question is to slip through and, above all, yes, above all, the question is to elude judgment. I am not saying to avoid punishment, for punishment without judgment is bearable. It has a name, besides, that guarantees our innocence. It is called misfortune. No, on the contrary, it's a matter of dodging judgment, of avoiding being forever judged without ever having a sentence pronounced. But one can't dodge it so easily. Today, we are always ready to judge as we are to fornicate. With this difference, that there are no inadequacies to fear. If you doubt this, just listen to the table conversation during August in their summer hotels where our charitable fellow citizens take the boredom boredom cure. If you still hesitate to conclude, read the writings of our great men of the moment, or else observe your own family and you will be edified. Mon cher ami, let's not give them any pretext, no matter how small, for judging us. Otherwise, we'll be left in shreds. We are forced to take the same precautions as the animal tamer. If, before going into the cage, he has the misfortune to cut himself while shaving, what a feast for the wild animals. I realized this all at once, the moment I had the suspicion that maybe I wasn't so admirable. From then on, I became distrustful. Since I was bleeding slightly, there was no escape from me. They would devour me. My relations with my contemporaries were apparently the same and yet subtly out of tune. My friends hadn't changed. On occasion, they still extolled the harmony and security they found in my company. But I was aware only of the dissonances and disorder that filled me. I felt vulnerable and open to public accusation. In my eyes, my fellows ceased to be the respectable, respectful public to which I was accustomed. The circle of which I was at the center broke and they lined up in a row as on the judge's bench. In short, the moment I grasped that there was something to judge in me, I realized that there was in them an irresistible vocation for judgment. Yes, they were there as before, but they were laughing. Or rather, it seemed to me that everyone I encountered was looking at me with a hidden smile. I even had the impression at that time that people were tripping me up. Two or three times, in fact, I stumbled as I entered public spaces. Once even, I went sprawling onto the floor. The Cartesian Frenchman in me didn't take long to catch hold of himself and attribute those accidents only to the reasonable divinity, that is, chance. Nonetheless, my distrust remained. Once my attention was aroused, it was not hard for me to discover that I had enemies, in my profession to begin with and also in my social life. Some among them I had obliged, Others I should have obliged. All that, after all, was natural, and I discovered it without too much grief. It was harder and more painful, on the other hand, to admit that I had enemies among people. I hardly knew or didn't know at all. I had always thought, with the ingeniousness I have already illustrated to you, that those who didn't know me couldn't resist liking me if they came to know me. Not at all. 
I encountered hostility, especially after among those who knew me only at a distance without my knowing them myself. Doubtless they suspected me of living fully, given up completely to happiness, and that cannot be forgiven. The look of success, when it is worn in a certain way, would infuriate a jackass. Then again, my life was full to bursting, and for lack of time I used to refuse many advances. Then I would forget my refusals for the same reason. But those advances had been made by people whose lives were not full and who, for that very reason, would remember my refusals. Thus, it is that in the end, to take but one example, women cost me dear. The time I used to devote to them I couldn't give to men, who didn't always forgive me this. Is there any way out? Your success and happiness are forgiven you only if you generously consent to share them. But to be happy, it is essential not to be too concerned with others. Consequently, there is no escape. Happy and judged, or absolved and wretched. As for me, the injustice was even greater. I was condemned for past successes. For a long time, I had lived in the illusion of a general agreement, whereas from all sides, judgments, arrows, mockeries rained upon me, inattentive and smiling. The day I was alerted, I became lucid. I received all the wounds at the same time and lost all my strength at once. The whole universe then began to laugh at me. That is what no man, except those who were not really alive, in other words, wise men, can endure. Spitefulness is the only possible ostentation. People hasten to judge in order to not be judged themselves. What do you expect? The idea that comes to man most naturally, as if from his very nature, is the idea of his innocence. From this point of view, we are all like that little Frenchman at Buchenwald who insisted on registering a complaint with the clerk, himself a prisoner, who was recording his arrival. A complaint? The clerk and his comrades laughed. Useless old man, you don't lodge a complaint here. But you see, sir, said the little Frenchman, my case is exceptional. I am innocent. We are all exceptional cases. We all want to appeal against something. Each of us insists on being innocent at all costs, even if he has to accuse the whole human race and heaven itself. You won't delight a man by complimenting him on the efforts of which he has become intelligent or generous. On the other hand, he will beam if you admire his natural generosity. Inversely, if you tell a criminal that his crime is not due to his nature or his character, but due to unfortunate circumstances, he will be extravagantly grateful to you. During the council's speech, this is the moment he will choose to weep. Yet there is no credit in being honest or intelligent by birth, just as one is surely no more responsible for being a criminal by nature than for being a criminal by circumstance. But those rascals want grace, that is irresponsibility, and they shamelessly allege the justifications of nature or the excuses of circumstance, even if they are contradictory. The essential thing is that they should be innocent, that their virtues by grace of birth should not be questioned, and that their misdeeds, born of a momentary misfortune, should never be more than provisional. As I told you, it's a matter of dodging judgment. Since it is hard to dodge it, tricky to get one's nature simultaneously admired and excused, they all strive to be rich. Why? Did you ever ask yourself? For power, of course.
but especially because wealth shields from an immediate judgment, takes you out of the subway crowd so to enclose you in a chromium-plated automobile, isolates you in huge protected lawns, pullmans, first-class cabins. Wealth, cher ami, is not quite acquittal, but reprieve, and that's always worth taking. Above all, don't believe your friends when they ask you to be sincere with them. They merely hope you will encourage them in the good opinion they have of themselves by providing them with the additional assurance they will find in your promise of sincerity. How could sincerity be a condition of friendship? A liking for truth at any cost is a passion that spares nothing and that nothing resists. It's a vice, at times a comfort or a selfishness. Therefore, if you are in that situation, don't hesitate. Promise to tell the truth and then lie as best you can. You will satisfy their hidden desire and doubly prove your affection. This is so true that we rarely confide in those who are better than we. Rather, we are more inclined to flee their society. Most often, on the other hand, we confess to those who are like us and who share our weaknesses. Hence, we don't want to improve ourselves to be bettered, for we should first have to be judged in default. We merely wish to be pitied and encouraged in the course we have chosen. In short, we should like, at the same time, to cease being guilty and yet not to make the effort of cleansing ourselves. Not enough cynicism and not enough virtue. We lack the energy of evil as well as the energy of good. Do you know Dante? Really? The devil, you say? Then you know that Dante accepts the idea of neutral angels in the quarrel between God and Satan. And he puts them in limbo, a sort of vestibule of his hell. We are in the vestibule, cher ami. Patience? You are probably right. It would take patience to wait for the last judgment, but that's it. We're in a hurry. So much in a hurry, indeed, that I was obliged to make myself a judge penitent. However, I first had to make shift with my discoveries and put myself right with my contemporaries' laughter. For the evening when I was called, for I was really called, I had to answer or at least seek an answer. It wasn't easy. For some time I floundered. To begin with, that perpetual laugh and the laughters had to teach me to see clearly within me and to discover at last that I was not simple. Don't smile. That truth is not so basic as it seems. What we call basic truths are simply the ones we discover after all the others. However that may be, after prolonged research on myself, I brought out the fundamental duplicity of the human being. Then I realized as a result of del delving in my memory that modesty helped me to shine, humility to conquer, and virtue to oppress. I used to wage war by peaceful means and eventually used to achieve through disinterested means everything I desired. For instance, I never complained that my birthday was overlooked. People were even surprised with a touch of admiration by my indiscretion on the subject. But the reason for my disinterestedness was even more discreet. I longed to be forgotten in order to be able to complain to myself. Several days before the famous date, which I knew very well, I was on the alert, eager to let nothing slip that might arouse the attention and memory of those on whose laps I was counting. Didn't I once go so far as to contemplate falsifying a friend's calendar? Once my solitude was thoroughly proved, I could surrender to the charms of a virile self-pity. 
Thus the surface of all my virtues had a less imposing reverse side. It is true that, in another sense, my shortcomings turned to my advantage. For example, the obligation I felt to conceal the vicious parts of my life gave me a cold look that was confused with the look of virtue. My indifference made me loved. My selfishness wound up in my generosities. I stopped there, for too great a symmetry would upset my argument. But after all, I presented a harsh exterior and yet could never resist the offer of a glass or of a woman. I was considered active, energetic, and my kingdom was the bed. I used to advertise my loyalty and I don't believe there is a single person I loved that I didn't eventually betray. Of course, my betrayals didn't stand in the way of my fidelity. I used to knock off a considerable pile of work through successive periods of idleness, and I had never ceased aiding my neighbor, thanks to my enjoyment in doing so. But however much I repeated such facts to myself, they gave me but superficial consolations. Certain mornings I would get up the case against myself most thoroughly, coming to the conclusion that I excelled above all in scorn. The very people I helped most was often the most scorned. Courteously, with a solidarity charged with emotion, I used to spit daily in the face of all the blind. Tell me, frankly, is there any excuse for that? There is one, but so wretched that I cannot dream of, of advancing it. In any case, here it is. I have never really been able to believe that human affairs were serious matters. I had no idea where the serious might lie, except that it was not at all in this I saw around me which seemed to me merely an amusing game or tiresome. There are really efforts and convictions I have never been able to understand. I always look with amazement, a certain suspicion on those strange creatures who died for money, fell into despair over the loss of a position, or sacrificed themselves with a high and muddy manner for the prosperity of their family. I could better understand that friend who made up his mind to stop smoking and through sheer willpower had succeeded. One morning he opened the paper, read that the first H-bomb had been exploded, learned about his wonderful effects, and hastened to a tobacco shop. To be sure, I occasionally pretended to take life seriously. But very soon the frivolity of seriousness struck me, and I merely went on playing my role as well as I could. I played at being efficient, intelligent, virtuous, civic-minded, shocked, indulgent, fellow-spirited, edifying. In short, there's no need of going on. You have already grasped that I was like my Dutchmen who are here without being here. I was absent at the moment when I took up the most space. I have never been really sincere and enthusiastic except when I used to indulge in sports and in the army when I used to act in plays we put on for our own amusement. In both cases there was a rule of the game which was not serious but which we enjoyed taking as if it were. Even now, the Sunday matches in an overflowing stadium and the theater, which I love with the greatest passion, are the only places in the world where I feel innocent. But who would consider such an attitude legitimate in the face of love, death, and the wages of the poor? Yet what can be done about it? I could imagine the love of a sold in only novels or on the stage. At times, people on their deathbeds seem to me convinced of their roles. The lines spoken by my poor clients always struck me as fitting the same pattern. Whence, living among men without sharing their interests, I could not manage to believe in the commitments I made. 
I was courteous and indolent enough to live up to what was expected of me in my profession, my family, or my civic life, but each time with a sort of indifference that spoiled everything. I lived my whole life under a double code, and my most serious acts were often the ones in which I was the least involved. Wasn't that after all the reason added to my blunders I could not forgive myself that made me revolt most violently against the judgment I felt forming in me and around me, and that forced me to seek and escape? For some time, my life continued outwardly as if nothing had changed. I was on rails and speeding ahead. As if purposely, people's praises increased. And that's just where the trouble came from. You remember the remark? Woe to you when all men speak well of you. Ah, the one who said that spoke words of wisdom. Woe to me. Consequently, the engine began to have whims, inexplicable breakdowns. Then it was the thought of death that burst into my daily life. I would measure the years separating me from my end. I would look for examples of men of my age who were already dead, and I was tormented by the thought that I might not have time to accomplish my task. What task? I had no idea. Frankly, what I was doing was worth continuing, but that's not quite it. A ridiculous fear pursued me, in fact. One could not die without having confessed all one's lies. Not to God or to one of his representatives. I was above that, as you well imagine. No, it was a matter of confessing to men, to a friend, to a beloved woman, for example. Otherwise, there were but one lie hidden in a life. Death made it definitive. No one ever again would know the truth on this point, since the only one to know it was precisely the dead man sleeping on his secret. That absolute murder of a truth used to make me dizzy. Today, let me interject, it would cause me instead subtle joys. The idea, for instance, that I am the only one to know what everyone is looking for, and that I have at home an object which kept the police of three countries on the run is a sheer delight. But let's not go into that. At the time, I had not yet found the recipe, and I was fretting. I pulled myself together, of course. What did one man's lie matter in the history of generations? And what pretension to want to drag out into the full light of truth a paltry fraud, lost in the sea of ages like a grain of sand in the ocean? I also told myself that the body's death, to judge from those I had seen, was in itself sufficient punishment that absolved all. Salvation was one, that is, the right to disappear definitively, and the sweat of the death agony. Nonetheless, the discomfort grew. Death was faithful at my bedside. I used to get up with it every morning, and compliments became more and more unbearable to me. It seemed to me that the falsehood increased with them so inornately that never again could I put myself right. A day came when I could bear it no longer. My first reaction was excessive. Since I was a liar, I would reveal this and hurl my duplicity in the face of all those imbeciles, even before they discovered it. Provoked truth, I would accept the challenge. In order to forestall the laughter, I dreamed of hurling myself into the general derision. In short, it was still a question of dodging judgment. I wanted to put the laughters on my side, or at least to put myself on their side. I contemplated, for instance, jostling the blind on the street, and from the secret, unexpected joy this gave me, I recognized how much a part of my soul loathed them. I planned to puncture the tires of invalids' vehicles, to go and shout, lousy proletarian, onto the scaffoldings on which laborers were working, 
to slap infants in the subway. I dreamed of all that and did none of it. Or if I did something of the sort, I have forgotten it. In any case, the very word justice gave me strange fits of rage. I continued, of necessity, to use it in my speeches to the court. But I took my revenge by publicly inveighing against the humanitarian spirit. I announced the publication of a manifesto exposing the oppression that the oppressed inflict on decent people. One day, while I was eating lobster at a sidewalk restaurant and a beggar bothered me, I called the proprietor to drive him away and loudly approve the words of that administrator of justice. You are embarrassing people, he said. Just put yourself in the place of these ladies and gents after all. Finally, I used to express, to whoever would listen, my regret that it was no longer possible to act like a certain Russian landowner whose character I admired. He would have a beating administered both to his peasants who bowed to him and to those who didn't bow to him in order to punish a boldness he considered equally imprudent in both cases. However, I recall more serious excesses. I began to write an ode to the police and an apotheosis of guillotine. Above all, I used to force myself to visit regularly the special cafes where professional humanitarian freethinkers gathered. My good past record assured me of a welcome. There, without seeming so, I would let fly a forbidden expression. Thank God, I would say, or more simply, my God. You know what shy little children or cafe atheists are? A moment of amazement would follow that outrageous expression. They would look at one another dumbfounded, then the tumult would burst forth. Some would flee the cafe. Others would gabble indignantly without listening to anything, and all would writhe in convulsions like the devil in holy water. You must look on that as childish. Yet maybe there was a more serious reason for those little jokes. I wanted to upset the game, and above all to destroy that flattering reputation, the thought of which threw me into a rage. A man like you, people would say sweetly, and I would blanch. I didn't want their esteem because it wasn't general. And how could it be general since I couldn't share it? Hence, it was better to cover everything, judgment and esteem, with a cloak of ridicule. I had to liberate at all costs the feeling that was stifling me in order to reveal to all eyes what he was made of. I wanted to break open the handsome wax figure I presented everywhere. For instance, I recall an informal lecture I had to give to a group of young fledgling lawyers. Irritated by the fantastic praises of the president of the bar who had introduced me, I couldn't resist long. I had begun with the enthusiasm and emotion expected of me, which I had no trouble summoning up on order. But suddenly, I began to advise an alliance as a system of defense. Not, I said, that alliances perfected by modern inquisitions which judge simultaneously a thief and an honest man in order to crush the second under the crimes of the first. On the contrary, I meant to defend the thief by exposing the crimes of the honest man, the lawyer in this instance. I explained myself very clearly on this point. Let us suppose that I have accepted the defense of some touching citizen, a murderer through jealousy. Gentlemen of the jury, consider, I should say, how venial it is to get angry when one sees one's natural goodness put to the test by the malignity of the fair sex. Is it not more serious, on the contrary, to be by chance on this side of the bar, on my own bench, without ever having been good or suffered from being duped? I am free, shielded from your severities, yet who am I? 
a Louis the Fourteenth in pride, a billy goat for lust, a pharaoh for wrath, a king of laziness. I haven't killed anyone, not yet to be sure, but have I not let deserving creatures die? Maybe, and maybe I am ready to do so again. Whereas this man, just look at him, will not do so again. He is still quite amazed to have accomplished what he has. The speech rather upset my young colleagues. After a moment, they made up their minds to laugh at it. They became completely reassured when I got into my conclusion, in which I invoked the human individual and his supposed rights. That day, habit won out. By repeating these pleasant indiscretions, I merely succeeded in disconcerting opinion somewhat, not in disarming it or, above all, in disarming myself. The amazement I generally encountered in my listeners, their rather reticent embarrassment, somewhat like what you are showing, no, don't protest, did not calm me at all. You see, it is not enough to accuse yourself in order to clear yourself. Otherwise, I'd be as innocent as a lamb. One must accuse oneself in a certain way, which it took me considerable time to perfect. I did not discover it until I fell into the most utterly forlorn state. Until then, the laughter continued to drift my way, without random efforts succeeding in divesting of its benevolent, almost tender quality that hurt me. But the sea is rising, it seems to me. It won't be long before a boat leaves. The day is ending. Look, the doves are gathering up there. They are crowding against one another, hardly stirring, and the light is waning. Don't you think we should be silent to enjoy this rather sinister moment? No, I interest you. You're very polite. Moreover, I now run the risk of really interesting you. Before explaining myself on the subject of judges penitent, I must talk to you of debauchery and of the little ease. Wouldn't it be great to be free of all of this? All right, that was chapter four of Albert Camus' The Fall. Um, and so the third chapter, uh, we spent a lot of time talking about all of the kind of sinister character flaws of our main character, Jean Clements. And for the most part, the entire third chapter is him talking about all of these strange masks that he wears or um, a lot of the insincereness of his, the actions that he takes in his life and there's definitely more of that in this chapter but it's not a chapter about that in my opinion maybe 15 percent of this chapter is dedicated to more of what we read in the third chapter um particularly the spot that sticks out most to me is when he uh, talks about intentionally trying to make sure that no one mentioned it was his birthday and so that he could seem like this humble person who didn't make his birthday all about him. And he could very nonchalantly brush off the fact that it was his birthday. And, and that's one thing. But he was so strategic about setting the situation up that it's just so duplicitous and insincere and strange that that kind of just falls right in line with, um, with what we've learned about him so far. But I think that there's an additional layer of depth added in this fourth chapter, where we, we really get some understanding of 
why he's here, why he is here confessing, being so brutally honest about his past, making himself look absolutely terrible. I think that we really learn a lot about his motivations for doing this confession in this chapter. And that to me is super interesting because just being presented with a character who reflects on his life and reflects on how shitty he was and just reading about how shitty a person is, isn't that interesting. It's at its most interesting when you figure out and you try and determine why he's actually doing it. Why are we here reading a book about Jean Clements confessing over the course of these days to an anonymous stranger? And I think we get a little bit of insight into that. I, of course, don't have any sort of definitive answer, but there are some things that come to mind. And the first thing that I really get from this chapter is I feel like Jean Clements is this character who's walking around really, really struggling with this huge discrepancy between the amount of external perfectness that his life might have um, or the amount of praise being lapped onto him by all of the people around him um, and the discrepancy between that and what is actually going on in his own internal mental reality. He can see his own fraud. He can see his own duplicitousness or his own manipulation of his own character. And so he is the only one privy to that. Everyone else on the outside just sees this great lawyer, criminal defense, virtuous character. And I think that Jean Clements has a really hard time taking and accepting so much of this external praise when he knows on the inside it's all a sham. And there's this great quote where he says, I wanted to break open the handsome wax figure I presented everywhere. And that to me sums up exactly this element of the last few chapters is this handsome wax figure that's presented on the outside is so fickle on the inside and so non-representative of what's going on in his character and in his eternal reality. And that's really the crux of this person's character, I think. Amazing uh, from this objective outside point of view, but totally the opposite on the inside. And uh, as Brendan has said on the podcast about uh, the Kafka story, but I think just applies to so many things is you use an extreme example to prove a more acceptable or more reasonable point. Now, Jean Clement is the extreme example of ultimate, unbelievable, objective, external success. And then on the inside, ultimate, unbelievable, duplicitness, um, shadiness, fraudness, whatever you want to call it, um, really pulled in both extremes. And so Jean Clements is the extreme example of probably something that we all feel in a more reasonable way, which is this strange gap between how the outside world and the people around us see us, um, whether good or bad, and how different or how contrasted that might be from how we see ourselves from our own internal reality. I think that every single human being that walks on the earth has a discrepancy there or there's a gap there for them. No one has an internal reality entirely consistent with how the external reality views that person. Um, and I really truly believe that. And I think that Jean Clements and Camus is using Jean Clements as the extreme case to tell us something all to tell us all something about ourselves. So that's very interesting. And I think that 
yes, Jean Clements is tormented by this discrepancy, but um, and additionally to that, he's he's terrified of being judged. Now he goes on and talks endlessly about uh, the ways in which human beings view themselves as innocent and all of these weird things that they do to avoid judgment. Um, and this is really interesting too because again we have here Jean Clements taking these extreme measures to avoid judgment but you know at the end of the day maybe it's telling us all something at a more reasonable level we too are doing the same thing um, there are multiple quotes throughout uh, the book where um, there, there are quotes where it's all about accusing people um, while thinking you yourself are innocent. There's a quote from an earlier chapter where it's, if pimps and thieves were invariably punished, uh, you and I would go on thinking that we were innocent or something like that. And there's another quote in this chapter that's just the same. And what I think Jean Clements is doing here is actually the complete opposite. We spent the whole third chapter, and I'm talking about how much I don't like this guy, but now... Um, he is facing that judgment head-on. He might have spent his entire life avoiding judgment and doing the same thing that we all do to a certain level, but here we have this man at the end of his life facing that judgment head-on. He is holding nothing back. He is revealing to us, the reader and this anonymous man, all of the sinister and uh, fake things that he did in his life. Um, and he is going to be judged by that. He is now accepting the judgment that he spent his whole life avoiding. Um, he is laying bare his entire life, all of his faults, all of the strange, sinister actions or behaviors he might have engaged in. He's holding nothing back, and he is facing that judgment of himself and his own guilt around it head on. And that's another one of these things that he, I think why he's so fixated with death there's this great section in the book where he he feels so strongly about everyone revealing the truths that only they know. It is almost a moral duty for uh, us to reveal them before we die because dying is one thing and the, the physical body will die away and you're going to affect the people around you and you know it's oblivion. But above all of that, a piece of truth might die with you if you do not come out um, with the truth before you die. And he sees this as absolutely essential, is before you die, you have almost a moral responsibility to reveal all of the truths that only you know and put them into the world before it's too late. Um, and he frames it as this kind of duty, which is so interesting. Um, and yeah, Jean Clements, although he might not have lived the most uh, admirable life, and I have spent so much of this audio project shitting on him and his character. There is something to be said about his ability at the end of his life to realize all of it and just lay bare and be honest and have this incredible, amazing confession holding nothing back. He's doing the opposite of what he's accusing himself doing throughout the whole book, which is framing everything for him to be seen as this virtuous, amazing, humble character. In his actual confession... He's not doing any of that. He's not trying to strategically have us think of him in any way. He's just like, yep, this is who I am. This is all of the things that I've done. Um, 
judge me for it. At least that's my interpretation. Um, and I think that's really interesting. And I'll pretty much end it here. There's just one other quote that I really liked and I thought was super interesting. I don't really know what to say or analyze from it, but um, he talks about like this this message or this 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 message you want to leave behind after you die. He's talking about it in the context of suicide, but I think it can apply to just death in general. Um, where there's this quote where it's like, um, he, I'm trying to find out how far back to go. Um, So he's talking about suicide, and the quote is, besides the, besides the fact that you might hear the reasons they give for your action, as far as I'm concerned, I can hear them now. He killed himself because he couldn't bear. Ah, cher ami, how poor and inconvention men are. They always think one commits suicide for a reason, but it's quite possible to commit suicide for two reasons. And I don't know why, but this quote sticks with me every single time that I read the book. And it rings so true. We always want to think about people leaving and the earth and dying, and it's all about one singular reason. There's always one tidbit, one little thing that we remember them for, one overarching trait, or one cause, or just why is it that we try so hard to distill it into one thing? When in fact, uh, uh, we have to realize human beings are complex, and in fact, their intention is probably to leave behind many, many things, not just two, as Camus kind of uh, uh, funnily suggests here, but many, many different things. And yet what he's saying here is it doesn't matter how hard you try to, to leave a legacy or to leave a message or to die for a cause or it doesn't matter what it is, like however complex your motives and intentions might be and how this grand idea of what you want to be remembered for, it's all at the end of the day going to be distilled to one singular thing whether you like it or not so you shouldn't even bother trying to control that narrative at all and i don't know why but that's just really interesting to me it's just one of these things we do as human beings this person died and they died for one reason and this is the one thing that they want to leave behind um anyways i think i'll end it there that was the fourth chapter of albert camus the fall we are plowing through this book. We've got two of these left, chapters five and six, and then we'll probably have a little bit of discussion about the book as a whole. But otherwise, thank you again, every single one of you for listening. It's such a pleasure to, to read this book, uh, to talk about it out loud. And I think if you've made it this far, I'm getting better and better at reading. So hopefully that continues on. Uh, for the rest of this book and for the rest of, Think of it. these future episodes as well. But that's all from me. Thank you very much, guys. Until the next one.